What's up guys, Pastor John here. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey and we believe that God has an incredible plan for your life and our hope is that tools like this sermon will help you become who he has created you to be. Now listen, in order to truly flourish and thrive like God intends for your life, it takes community. What I mean by that is we don't believe that simply by attending church online alone that you're going to be able to become every bit of who God has created you to be and who you want to be to grow spiritually, you need other people. And we would love to help you connect with other people right here at Greenhouse. True growth happens when we're rooted in a community that supports, uplifts, and walks alongside us. And so with that in mind, we would love for you to join us in person on Sundays right here at Western High School or in micro churches throughout the week. Um, listen, if you don't live near our church here in South Florida, please reach out to us. We would love to help you find and thrive in a local faith community near you. We're excited to partner with you as we all become passionate followers of Jesus. God bless you. We're in the midst of a series called Open Heaven. Everybody say, Open Heaven. Last week, we talked about three types of people Paul lays out in the scriptures. There are natural people, there are spiritual people, and there are fleshly people. And the question on the floor is, which one are you? If you do not know, or if you missed it last week, highly encourage you to check that out on our podcast or YouTube channel. Don't miss that spiritual diagnostic. It is great and helpful to know where you're at. What I'm hoping we all decided is that we wanna be spiritual. Anybody like, I wanna be the spiritual person, not the fleshly person, not the natural person. All right, and so uh, sort of exp continuing to unpack last week, if the uh, question was, which type of person are you this week, I wanna unpack one of the key components that Paul lays out for how a spiritual person thinks and lives. So if you have a Bible and you wanna turn to 1 Corinthians chapter three, 1 Corinthians chapter three, we will pick up in verse five after a Miami Dolphins victory. It feels very good, feels very good. And we should be able to beat the lowly Carolina Panthers. Please God, just keep Tua healthy. Just, just, just keep him healthy, please. All right, verse five, if you're ready, say preach preacher. I will. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Remember, there was this dynamic going on then. They're just servants through whom you, you believed and as the Lord assigned to each. Paul is writing this to the Corinthian followers of Jesus. He says, I planted Apollos waters, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his wages according to his labor for we are God's fellow workers. Other versions say co-workers. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, co-worker. Hey, co-worker, we are God's co-workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace God has given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. Everybody say, the day. What day? The day. Don't worry, we'll get into it. For the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And I'll cap it off here. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit 
dwells in you. Let's pray. Lord, we know it. We do. A lot of us in this room, online, Guyana, we know it. But Lord, we forget. We drift. We've got like spiritual amnesia. We just, it, it, it runs out of our minds. Lord, bring to the forefront who we are and who you have created us to be. And all God's people said, amen. Turn your neighbor, give him a fist bump, a high five, kiss him on the lips if you're married to him. Take heed how you build, Paul says, because the day is coming. Anyone ever gotten to visit or lived in California? sunny California. Uh, my brother lives in California, and I remember the first time I was going to get to visit him. Now, my experience with California prior to that had been very limited, largely postcards and one visit to San Diego. Now, when I went to San Diego, it looked like this. Boom. And I was anticipating my arrival. It was summertime. I was anticipating my arrival in sunny, splendid paradise, California. It's like 70s during the day, low 60s, light jacket weather at night. It was perfect. I was so excited. It was June. I was ready. I got packed. I got there and I came to this. This is San Francisco. What I did not know, but learned the hard way, is that in June, summertime, mind you, San Francisco is dominated by fog. They call it June gloom. It's a thing. You would figure, well, it must be gone. No, 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 it stays on. In August, it's not August in San Francisco. It's foggest. It just stays forever. And it's freezing, at least for the South Florida boy. And I remember every place we went to, this was Nancy and I's first visit. We learned after this one. We went there and every place we went, I had this tiny little light windbreaker jacket and we're like teeth chattering in our pictures. My lips are blue. It was horrible. And I'm, I remember thinking, this is not what I thought it would be. Sunny California is a lie. That's why they're all moving to Florida, y'all. That's why. And, and I remember realizing this fog, it, it's crazy. I mean, this is, not, this is not Photoshop. This is real life. It, it, it's dangerous. It's debilitating. You go out in the morning and you can barely see your hand. It's crazy. And they've got this significant problem in this area when it comes to a lack of visibility. Because while you might go out and generally know the terrain, the problem is that you're not seeing things clearly or, or at least as clearly as you thought. Now stick with this metaphor. Paul is writing to these followers of Jesus in Corinth and they have a significant problem on their hands. Namely, there is a fog that has gone over their vision and they are not seeing things as clearly as they think. They have this sort of distorted vision and it's interrupting the way and the manner in which God has created them to flourish and to thrive. And specifically, Paul points to two types of wisdom. This morning, I wanna unpack two types of wisdom. The first one is worldly wisdom. It's kind of how the world operates. If you remember from last week, this is the natural wisdom. It's just kind of the conventional thought. And, and the problem with worldly wisdom is that while it might serve you in a moment, it is too short-sighted for the long-term vision that God has for your life. And Paul is calling these followers of Jesus then and now to a true wisdom, to a godly wisdom, to a 30,000 square feet above the fog, if you will, to see our lives and life more clearly. 
This, this low visibility problem, it's not just a San Francisco problem and it's not just a Corinthian problem. I think if we were to be honest, it is a human problem, amen? We have a difficult time seeing life and scenarios clearly. Often we look in the rearview mirror proverbially and think, how didn't I see it? And God, because he cares for us and is always on a rescue mission for our hope and thriving, is coming to let us know and remind us that as human beings, our vision gets impaired and we need a vision correction from heaven. How many of you would say, Lord, help me see it? You can even say it to him, Lord, help me see it. First point is this, I'm gonna hit three stopping points along the way. Paul is kind of unpacking and walking these Corinthian believers down a path. The first one is this, when it comes to God's wisdom, true wisdom, the first thing we need to be reminded of is this, this is God's work. This is God's work, which means we can have peace. Take a look in the passage. I'll pick up again in verse five. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Now, let me pause for a second. If you remember several chapters earlier, this sounds familiar, right? It's like deja vu, same problem. If you remember the, the followers of Jesus in this culture in particular were sort of obsessed with personalities. They were like, well, I follow this guy and I follow that guy. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. They were kind of, they were kind of personality obsessed. Now I know we can't relate to that in our culture, but let's pretend, right? Let's pretend that we were a culture like that. And Paul is stepping in saying, listen, listen, listen. Yeah, God uses people, but at the end of the day, the hero is not a person. The hero is who? It's God. This is God's work. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed, but God assigned to each. He says, I planted Apollos waters, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He plants and he who waters are one and each will receive wages according to his labor. For we are God's, here it is, co-workers, fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. This is the encouraging, hope-stirring, peace-giving reminder at the very beginning of this chapter that this is God's work. We are God's field. This is God's building. And God is very competent as a builder. Some of us have had experiences with home renovations and they maybe took a little bit longer than they were, we were told. God is an amazingly competent builder. He always accomplishes the work he begins. This is that Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. This is the heart-stirring reminder that your incompetence does not outweigh God's competence. He can and he will do it. He is faithful. He'll complete the work. He's the hero. He'll save the day. He'll finish the work. He is the author and the what? finisher of our faith. God does not leave book reports undone. He finishes them and he only writes one type of story. It's a redemption story. God's gonna do it. He that began a good work and you will see it through to completion. He says, listen, they're just co-workers for the king. God, it's his building. It's, it's his field. 
This is important because we live in the midst of a world that's trembling, and for good reason, to be fair. We look at what's happening in the Middle East, Israel and Hamas, and and we're trembling. We look at the uncertainty of the economy and inflation and the housing market, and we're trembling. We look at all of these things, and and Paul is writing. He's like, listen, listen, no no te preocupe. Like, you don't need to worry about this stuff. It's going to be fine. But what? God, he can handle it. He's gonna complete the work. Whatever your situation might be in life, if you are tempted to think that you're not strong enough, good enough, competent enough, and powerful enough to fix it, you're right. Often we get stuck in cognitive dissonance because our current pop culture thoughts are, you can do anything. You're like, I don't think I can. You can do it. You're like, I don't think. It feels impossible. No, 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 but you've got it all inside of you. You're like, do you know me? I mess stuff up. God's like, you're right. You ever felt that before? You're like, why does this not, it doesn't feel true. It's not. We're not the hero of our story. Have you met you? You're like me and I'm like you and we're like us. We're a mess, but he's amazing. And he takes even well, well-intentioned blunders and somehow like does his Jedi ninja God stuff and works it for good. You're like, how did he do that? Cause he's God. This is his work. This is God's work so we can have peace. God's gonna use Paul and God's gonna use Apollos and God's gonna use Will and God's gonna use Akil and God's gonna use Deidre and God's gonna use Sarah. He's gonna use all sorts of people. He's gonna use microchurch and he's gonna use macrochurch and he's gonna use the global East and he could even use the West and God's gonna use Presbyterians and he's gonna use Baptists and he's gonna use non-denominations. God's gonna use all sorts of people but at the end of the day, guess who is the hero who brings it through the finish line? God. And he's gonna do his thing. And he says this, verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, God's the hero, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is who? Jesus, always the right answer in church, right? The foundation, the call at the very foundational component of your life, the foundation that stands the test of time is Jesus. And when your foundation is Jesus, listen to me, you can have peace in the midst of the storm. You can have peace in the midst of turmoil. You can have peace in the midst of economic uncertainty and job uncertainty and political uncertainty and relational uncertainty. When Jesus is a foundation, you can have peace because he is the author and the finisher because he is the one who will complete the work. He is the constant. If your life feels like a a proverbial up and down perennial roller coaster, examine your foundation. He's the sure foundation, that's a constant, but there is a variable in the equation and it is our part. This is where this conversation gets interesting and nuanced. If point number one is this is God's work, which means you can have peace. Point number two is that your work will be judged. So have urgency and sobriety. What Paul's laying out here is like the beauty of a guitar string that the only way it makes its note, wow, there The only way it makes a note, that was so much worse than I envisioned it in my mind. The only way it makes its note is when it sits in appropriate what? Tension. 
There is a tension Paul is laying out here for these followers of Jesus then and now, which is God is the hero. God's doing the work. God is the competent one. God's gonna do it. And he's called us to be participatory in and through and by his grace. So have urgency and sobriety. Jump back again into the text. Look at verse 12. Paul says, now if anyone builds on the foundation, the foundation is what again? Jesus, he's the hero. It all starts with Jesus. It all ends with Jesus. He's the hero, but we are joining in this mission. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation and then he gives all of these various building materials, anybody in construction used gold recently? Probably not, but that's what he's talking. You're there and you're working with precious stones and gold and silver and wood and hay and straw and each one's work will become manifest. Here it is again, for the day will disclose it. We'll talk about the day in just a moment, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Jesus is the foundation, but we add the building materials. Are you tracking with this analogy so far? I remember a story I heard a couple years ago and it it always stuck with me. There was a, uh, a man that was in construction and he had a relative, did very well in business, very well off, who came to him and said, hey, listen, I want you to build this house for me. Gave him kind of the general vision and specs and said, hey, listen, your family, I trust you, go make it happen. And, uh, and, and as life tends to do, it got really busy and the family member that was gonna be building this house and was in construction uh, sort of had this crisis of what do I do? I've got more work on my plate than I can handle. And so he thought to himself, well, you know, these guys are like, they're they're after me. I need to get these projects done. This guy's family so I can. And so he kind of cut some material corners and he didn't quite do things the best that could be done. And and he pushed off some of the debt and he kind of gave him like the, the, uh, (laughs) the, the lesser treatment when it came to this house. And eventually it got done. And, um, and so he kind of sheepishly went to his relative and he said, hey, listen, we finished everything up. You know, here are the keys. Uh, enjoy the house. And to his utter dismay, the relative said, no, 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 no. This house is for you. And the friend realized that the consequence of his bad workmanship would not fall on the family member, it would fall on himself. Paul says, let each one be careful then how they build. The reminder here is a sobering one. On one hand, it's hope stirring, faith building and full of peace. God is the hero of the story, it's his work. And on the other hand, it is a sobering call to remember that your life right now, in este momento, right now, at this very moment, your life is building your eternity. Your thoughts, meditations, deeds, your motives, they they kind of make up, if you will, your building materials. And the question on the floor for you and I this morning is what kind of construction are you building into all of eternity? Verse 14, it gives this curious analogy that I want us to explore together. He says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. If anyone's work is burned up, I don't know if you've ever had to go through a fire in your home, but I I have not, thank God, but I can imagine the tragedy of it all. For us, it's probably more of a rare occurrence. In the ancient world, though, it was super common. 
In the ancient world, it was not a question of if a fire ever happened, God forbid, it was like, well, we better be ready because at some point there's gonna be a fire and they're not, they don't have fire engines in the ancient world. You guys are tracking with this, right? It's like, here's the hope that the buckets can do something. But if the fire comes, your home's gone. And what lasts is only the materials you built that are able to remain. Now in the ancient world, a fire would just happen. Now, if you were poor, if you were impoverished, the building materials that you most likely had afforded to you would be wood, hay, and straw. And when the fire comes, guess what happens? <laughs> Gone. But if you had financial means, if you had opportunity, the, the gold standard of ancient world construction was to diversify your materials. You would try to get some brick and you would try to get some other things in there that if God forbid, when the fire came, they might stand the test of time and maybe you'd at least have some sort of a skeleton to work with. But the fire would reveal, the fire would expose the nature of the materials being built with. We probably don't track with fire as much, so let me give you a modern day South Florida example. A hurricane is coming. And when it comes, you will find out if your house was built to the pre-Andrew code and standards or the post-hurricane Andrew standards. And when it hits, you will see the difference. It's coming, it's happening the day. Now in this case, he's using natural analogies. In the ancient world, the fire was coming regardless. Hopefully, please Lord, keep all the hurricanes away. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Yes and amen, amen. Two houses can look the same on the outside, but when the day comes, when the fire comes, when the storm comes, the true nature of the internal construction will be made evident and the workmanship will be clear. What Paul's using here is he's using a natural analogy to help people think about spiritual realities. The message, the reminder is that you are building an eternal life and you are choosing your building materials daily. I can imagine in the ancient world, as the fire comes, as it tends to do, oftentimes people would be surprised. They've inherited a homestead through the generations and maybe they're three generations into it already have been, been built and they're living in it. And they're assuming, man, I know my relatives took good care because they were thinking about the future. They were thinking about posterity. They were thinking about generations. Most people probably hoped and imagined that the home would be firm, but they wouldn't know until the day came and the day revealed. Let's talk about the day. The day is something the early church would talk about all the time. They had this refrain they would echo, Maranatha, it meant come Lord Jesus. The day is the day that Jesus returns because he really did die and he really did resurrect and he really is coming back to make all things right, to make all things new and to judge. I know we don't like this word, but it's important. This, was a, this is a Bible word, this is a Bible principle, and this was something that consumed the thinking of the early followers of Jesus. So let's dive in. We need a fuller, kind of more wise wisdom understanding of this biblical theme of judgment. On one hand, there's gonna be a judgment of wrath. This is what the Bible says. I'll unpack it for you. Anyone that is not covered by the grace of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, they will, they will reap and inherit the consequences for their actions for all of eternity. 
Now, this is an equal opportunity offender situation here. Every single person has fallen short of God's standard. Every single person has said, listen, I'm, I'm gonna do my thing. God, I got this. Chill, I'll take it from here. Every single person is sitting under, just by the nature of our composition, this potential wrath of God. And when Jesus steps in, he covers, he absorbs, he atones for that wrath. If someone does not know Jesus, there is a judgment of wrath, which is why those of us who have met Jesus are deeply motivated, not because we think we're better, but because we know we're not, by the love of God, by the grace of God, to share with people about the amazing forgiveness they can find in Jesus. But there's another judgment. What he's talking about in this text is not a judgment of wrath. How do I know? Because he literally says in the text, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. What he's talking about in this passage is not the judgment of wrath. It's not the Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's not the judgment he's talking about. What he's talking about here is something that's talked about throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It is a judgment of rewards. Look at verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive what? What is that all about? What's the reward thing? Like, do I get extra harps to play with the fat babies on clouds? Like, what exactly is the reward that lasts for eternity? That sounds kind of boring. I don't really understand. Okay, fair and worth unpacking. Here's what you need to understand about God. God is not looking to punish. He's looking to reward. God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only son. So whoever is willing, humble enough to admit, Jesus, I need you, will, will not perish but inherit eternal life. Like that, God's heart is, he's not wanting anyone to perish but to turn. By the way, those are Bible verses. That's God's heart. God is not looking to punish. He loves us. He created us. Like any good parent, he is hoping for good behavior so he can give a reward. You say, John, judgment, like that's, man, come on. That's Old Testament stuff. Actually, it's not. It's Jesus stuff. Jesus preached the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in the history of humanity. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the overwhelming themes of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six, you can read it later, over and over and over again, is how people already received their reward. You remember hearing that? When you go out and you pray these big prayers and you say, Father God, and you look around and make sure if everyone heard how spiritual you are. He said, you already received your reward. When you fast and you make yourself look miserable, hey man, how you doing? Oh man, you know, it's just hard. Fasting, you know? Be like, didn't you just eat breakfast? Yeah, but I haven't eaten lunch. <laughs> Jesus said, don't do that. You already received your reward. Over and over, Jesus is talking about rewards, by the way, to his disciples. Here's the principle. True wisdom, biblical wisdom, God's wisdom, spiritual people, which we all long to be, ordinary people becoming passionate followers of Jesus. Spiritual people realize you don't want all your rewards now. He said, when you do life, when you do good things, when you do godly things, Jesus said, do them in secret so no one else sees because then your father in heaven will see and he will reward you. He will reward you. Paul is picking up this same theme from Rabbi Jesus. Martin Luther said it like this, the, the great reformer. He said, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day, this day and that day. Now here's our problem. In our modern world, we get so inundated and consumed with this day that we have no bandwidth to think about that day. 
We get so preoccupied, we get so busy, we get so distracted that we're only thinking about this day and not that day. Busy lives, busy schedules. And Paul says, receive true wisdom. Imagine your life is a rope stretching into eternity. It it doesn't go into eternity, but just imagine, okay? Stretching into eternity, right? You just picture this going on into the parking lot, into Shenandoah, for into the Everglades, the alligators chew on it, goes forever. And this red part right here, this is your life. This whole thing is your life. Why? Because we're created, we're eternal beings, we're spiritual beings, we're gonna live forever. The question is not if, the question is where you will live for all of eternity, but you're gonna live forever. And imagine this whole thing stretching on for all of eternity is your life. And this little red part right here, can you guys see that? This little red part right here is the component of your life that happens on earth. Wisdom would say you do not live your life for the red part, you live your life for the white part, right? Because the the component of your life spent in the white is much greater, exponentially greater, unfathomably greater than the little bit that you will spend in the red. And this is what Paul is unpacking for these Corinthian followers of Jesus, tempted and inundated in a Greco-Roman world to obsess about pleasure and look for eternal abundant life, but they're only thinking about the red. And the reality is what we actually live is much more than this little speck we inherit in time. The fleshly person, they don't see it clearly. The fleshly person, they're only living. The natural person, they're only living with the natural mind, with conventional wisdom. All they're thinking about, Paul says this later, he says, listen, if Jesus really isn't the real deal, if Jesus didn't die and raise from the dead, man, we might as well just have a party, eat, drink, and be merry, because this is all there is, but he did, which means all of this is at play. The fleshly person, the natural person, it's not that they are wicked necessarily or malevolently intended. It is simply that they don't see the whole picture. It's nearsightedness. It's myopic viewpoints. It's, let's be honest, what we all struggle with. Just looking at what's in front of us rather than the whole picture. The fleshly person, the natural person, they live only in light of this age. The spiritual person, they live with the mind of the spirit. They see the timeline accurately. They actually run the cost-benefit analysis appropriately. And so they live in light of all the rest of this. They live in light of eternity. Point number one, here's the hope and I don't trip on that. Point number one, this is God's work, so have peace. Point number two, but your work will be judged, so have urgency and sobriety. Which leads us to point number three, really the decision that you and I have to make which is there's a difference between the world's wisdom and true wisdom. You see it, right? There's a difference between the world's wisdom and true wisdom. And my prayer is that you and I, that we would make the switch. I love the honesty with which Paul communicates to these followers of Jesus. Look in verse 18. He said, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, if you're winning at this game, if you're winning in the natural framework of mind, then go ahead and become a fool so you can become truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, it's foolishness to God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. 
If anyone among you thinks that he is wise, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. You're like, what in the world? This is crazy. This is like wordplay to the next level. Like if you want to become wise, become a fool. Then you become wise. Like what? Je who talks like this? Jesus. These paradoxical statements. If you want to live, what do you have to do? Jesus said, die. You're like what? He said, ah, you, you got to see the whole picture. You, you got to see the whole rope. It only makes sense if you see the whole picture. Become fools to become wise. It's, it's the upside down nature of the kingdom. Earth won't see it because all they're looking at is the red. But father does because he sees the whole picture. God does because he sees the whole picture. But we live on earth and we live around people who are just like you and I, ordinary people doing their best to get by. And, and if they're living with a framework of simply focusing on the red, thinking that that's all there is, then it is very tempting for you and I to lose heart, to grow weary, to get discouraged, to feel like no one notices, to feel like, man, what, what am I doing? This just feels like a waste. Came across a story this week of a missionary couple who had spent a lifetime serving on the mission field overseas. They got done with their tenure, they were getting older, they were starting to have health concerns and they knew it was time for them to return. And so this was back in the day and so they boarded a ship and it just so happened that at one of the points of deparkation, embarkation, however that works, one of the points of entry, uh, someone got on the ship who was a famous celebrity. And so they're on the ship with the celebrity. They get to their final destination. They get to the port and there is a party waiting. There's a welcoming committee. There's a whole bunch of people. There's cheering. And the missionary and his wife are like, oh man. And then the celebrity walks out in front of them and they realize, oh, they are not cheering for us. She had a whole crew, autographs, pictures. It was a whole thing. There was all of these people giving her glory and honor and accolades. And she's getting off the boat and, and it's amazing. And they're just kind of waiting and, and, and everyone's there. And, and, and the kind of the parade goes off into the distance with this celebrity and the missionary couple gets ready to get their bags. No one's carrying their bags. They're carrying them themselves. And they're thinking they're alone, but then they realize they're not. There is one person there for them. And it's a really beautiful story. In a moment of candor, this man turns to his wife and he says, man, babe, I, I was kind of hoping that was for us, you know, like, and, and you get it, like, we're, we're spiritual people, but we're humans. Like, they had given their lives, they had suffered, said no to all sorts of comforts that home could have afforded them, given themselves for Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom. And he's like, man, I was just kind of hoping to get some little acknowledgement, some sort of recognition. Like we get back home and I'm hoping something is, man, I'm, I'm just so disappointed. And his wife was like my hero. She said, oh baby, don't you wait. We're not home yet. all week long I could not shake that story like if, if this is all there is then that guy should just be dejected depressed what a waste but that's not all there is 
and there's a welcoming committee. Hebrews says there's a cloud of witnesses that are watching and waiting, celebrating like, man, God, like there, there's all, we're not, if we follow Jesus, what you're getting on this earth is not what you're getting. It's just what you're getting now. And if you aren't sensing the acknowledgement of well done, good and faithful servants, it just because it hasn't happened yet. If you're gonna be a spiritual person, if you're gonna follow the wisdom from heaven versus the natural wisdom of this earth, it means that it often will not make sense to this earth because it does not come from this earth. And maybe you're here, maybe you're online, maybe you're in Guyana and you have started following Jesus and you are right now, you relate to that man, that missionary man. Like, man, John, it just, it just feels like a waste preserving your virginity. Because Jesus said, don't sleep with people you're not married to, not because he wants to spoil our fun, but because he loves us and wants us to flourish. Waking up early to seek the Lord when you're like, man, I could just use pastor pillow, not, not, not time in the Bible, like, uh, but, but I, want, I love Jesus and I wanna spend time with him. You're serving in a ministry behind the scenes and you're like, I don't know if anyone has any idea what I do. You're, you're choosing a lower lifestyle. You've been thinking about Missionary Sam and this generosity adventure and, and the thought of giving to see kids rescued out of trafficking and have their life changed forever. You're leaving a better tip at a restaurant when you get subpar service and they deserve very little, but you're gonna give them more. You're, you got young kids and you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing my kids to church every single week, even though it feels like I'm gonna explode by the time I get here. And half the time I'm like in the flesh in the parking lot, like kids, just get out and learn about God. And you're like, am I crazy? Like, no, you're not crazy. You're living with the end in mind. The reality is there are eternal things that happen that no one on this earth sees, but God always sees. And nothing done in faith is ever wasted. You get here to church and you just get your kids here and there are seeds that get planted that when punk John Lash is running around like an idiot, all of a sudden God gets a hold of me and all of these seeds that my parents planted and brought me into spiritual environments, all of a sudden they germinate because they were there. They just needed life from the spirit of God. And listen to me, if you live like this, they might laugh. You will not be considered the most wise, the most savvy, the most cool, the most attuned in the current natural wisdom of this age. And by the way, that's an indicator that you're doing it right, not that you're doing it wrong. It might feel like a waste, but if you're living for eternity, he sees it all. Here's the application. I am praying that this week we would ask God, God, help me see it like you see it. Help me become wise. Verse 18 says, if you feel wise in this age, be warned. That's natural person stuff. That's fleshly person stuff. That's not spiritual person stuff. If you feel like you're wise in this age, become a fool so that you can become wise in God's eyes. James 1.5 says, in all you're getting, get wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, how many of you are like, I need, I can use some more wisdom. Yeah, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives it generously. God's gonna do it. 
He's called us to join and build. It's not a question of if you're building, simply what you're building and how you're building. So ask for his help. Lord, convince me of the day. Convince me of the wisdom of living in light of eternity, not just this little red strip on earth. God, convince me of eternal rewards. Convince me that the cost of following you is worth it. Convince me that temporary sacrifice is worth eternal rewards. Ask for his help. And then number two, ask him for awareness. And here's what I mean by this. Our world is contagious. Our culture is contagious. Ask God, Lord, what foolishness of this world have I adopted as wisdom and a rule of life? Because there's something. There's something for me, there's something for you, there's something for every single one of us. This world has too much of a sway for that not to be the case. Ask God to help you see it. And then exchange this world's wisdom for his wisdom. We've all got areas like this. We've all got areas where we are all more impacted by culture than we are by the kingdom. Invite God in to show you how. Maybe it's meant, John, I, I, I hear you guys talk about it all the time and I hear the testimonies. And so I'm just too busy for community. I'm just too busy for microchurch. John, I, I know that... I, I've just got so much going on. I know I could, I should be abiding 15 and 15. I know, I know, I'm spending time with God daily, but I've just got too much going on. God, I, John, I know I should increase my standard of giving and generosity, not just my standard of living because where the treasure is there, the heart is also, but there's just so much nice stuff out there. I know I should be merciful to that coworker, but they deserve it. I, I know God's placed me at my job. I, I know it, but my boss is so flawed. And I know I should be carving out time to, to serve in church. I know volunteerism is plummeting in the nonprofit world and the church is no exception, is in crisis. And yet there's more needs than ever and people are hurting, but I just got so much, whatever, wherever you might find yourself, say, God, show me. Show me where your wisdom needs to be incorporated into my life. Because as followers of Jesus, we're spiritual people. Where ordinary people become spiritual people, passionate followers of Jesus who are living for eternity, not just for the here and now, and earth might not see it yet or to be clear, ever. But Father always does and nothing done in faith is ever wasted. I was reminded of a story this week. Many years ago, Gordon Thomas was a senior at a small college in Pennsylvania. He was on the school's football team, but he never, ever played. The coach liked having him on the team because Gordon was so enthusiastic and spirited. He was the first one to practice. He was the last one to leave. He was always up, always encouraging, always bringing up the environment, always encouraging his teammates. Coach would always say, Gordon is the glue that holds his team together. It was the Monday before the last game of the season, Gordon's last game as a senior, his last game of his entire college career, his last chance to ever play. His coach always promised Gordon that he'd get him back into a game before he graduated, but it had just never happened. When Gordon got back to his dorm room after practice that Monday, there was a priest waiting for him. He had tragic news for Gordon. Gordon's dad had died of a massive heart attack earlier in the day. Gordon immediately got on a bus for the sad trip home. The next day, coach came to Gordon's home to pay a condolence call and found him in tears. Gordon, is there anything I can do for you? 
After a long pause, Gordon said, Coach, I, I probably won't be able to make the game on Saturday. I'm so sorry. I know it's our last name, game, but I need to stay home with my family. But do you think the team could say a prayer for my family and for my dad? Coach promised them that they would. The morning of the big game, Coach was in his office and there was a knock at the door. And it was Gordon. Gordon, Coach said, why aren't you home with your mom and your sisters? Gordon said, Coach, I need a big favor paused and said, okay, what do you need? Coach, could you please start me today? The coach responded, start, you've never even played a single snap. He said, coach, just for one game, this is what I've got to do for my dad. You can start me for the first play and, and, and take me right out after that. The coach paused, thought about it and agreed. Gordon rushed out of the office before the coach could change his mind. Smart man. Coach planned to put Gordon in for just one play and then take him off. But on the first play from scrimmage, the quarterback accidentally handed Gordon the ball. And believe it or not, he ran for eight yards. Coach left him in the game. And the next time he was given the ball, he ran for 12 yards. In fact, Gordon played so well that the coach never took him out of the game. He was the starting running back and he scored. He had the type of game that football players dream about. He rushed for almost 200 yards, scored three touchdowns. If you're not a football person, that's an amazing game. He single-handedly won the game for his team. When the game was over, Gordon was carried off the field on his teammates' shoulders. What a story. His last game was his first game, and it was one of the best games any running back in his college history had ever had. Gordon was being interviewed after the game by a local sports writer when one of the assistant coaches told Gordon that coach wanted to see him in his office. Coach, thanks for putting me in today, Gordon said, elated and beaming. Gordon, I I, I don't know what to say. I never dreamed you'd play like that. What happened to you out there? After a long pause, Gordon, now in tears, said, coach, did you ever meet my dad? No, son, I never had the pleasure, coach replied. Coach, the reason you never met my dad and the reason I played so well today are really the same reason. Coach, my dad was blind and today was the first day he could ever see me play. I wanted to show dad what I could do. And I read this story and I'm like, that's it. Like why? Why in the world would you willingly suffer ridicule? Why in the world would you choose a manner of life, a rule of life that looks like foolishness to the people and the culture and the coworkers and the friends around you? Why in the world would you delay gratification? Why in the world would you suffer hardship? Because dad is watching us play. Because he's watching. I think about this. I'm factoring into decision. I'm like, man, it could be so good in the immediate. And then I'm like, wait a second. I don't just live in the immediate. I'm living for all of eternity. Jesus, and if there's anything I could do, listen, I love Jesus. I know I'm a pastor, I'm just a dude. I love Jesus with all of my heart. If there's anything that I can do to put a smile on the face of Father watching in heaven, I'm like, Lord, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And all the suffering and all the hardship and all the challenges and all the ridicule, they are worth it in light of an eternal reward and of a God who looks on from heaven with a smile saying, man, that is my boy. 
and whom I'm well pleased. Friends, we are not living for a standing ovation on earth. Remember who you are, church. We're living so that the bleachers of heaven can go crazy in applause because what looked like foolishness on this earth is the smartest value proposition ever from the perspective of heaven. We are living for eternity. We are living for his approval, for his smile, for his reward. And he's our reward. And if you're here this morning watching online in Guyana and you find yourself discouraged and you feel like things are not turning out on this life, in this moment, in this way, how you, how you hope they would. Listen, I am praying that God comes through. I am praying that you would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But let me remind you, you are thinking about this. Think also about all of this. He is faithful. He comes through. His word is true. His word does not come back void. He's gonna do it. God's gonna do it. Be encouraged, take heart. Do not grow weary in doing good for you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. That's what Galatians 6 says. It's all worth it. Every single bit of things done in faith, it's all worth it. He's worth it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're amazing. You're amazing. Lord, you're worth everything. Every bit of ridicule, every single ounce of hardship, every challenge, everything this world could throw our way in opposition. Jesus, you are worth everything. And we're gonna stand before you at some point whenever the day comes for us. And we're not gonna regret the pleasures we did not indulge in on earth. We're gonna regret, the only regret will be the things that we could have done for you while we had this limited bit of time on this planet. Jesus, fix our minds, fix our vision, fix our perspectives, help, perspectives, help us to see life like you see it.